Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. In the summer of 1991, reporter and environmentalist Steve Grant traveled the entire 410 miles of the Connecticut River from its source in New Hampshire to Long Island Sound by self-paddled canoe. Throughout the 33-day journey, Grant reported on his voyage in stories for the Hartford Current. His every other day tales made Grant a celebrity and his journey something of a legend. 29 years after that life-changing trip, state historian Walt Woodward met Grant on the banks of the Connecticut River in Hartford to talk about the journey, the man, and the river in another time. It's a fascinating two-part interview that covers everything from early 90s internet technology to environmental restoration to traffic jams in the great North Woods. Steve Grant's legendary 1991 Source to Sea journey on the Connecticut River coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. This river's been in my blood Since before I was born Rock, water, and mud Wheat, hops, and corn Loved you when you were clean and clear A seldom-traveled road And I loved you old and dirty And that was not so long ago I love you so Oh, I tell you what I love that river, she's Connecticut Well, Steve Grant, how are you? I'm good, and good to be here on the banks of the Connecticut River. We are here to talk about, I'm, I'm going to assume it was a life-changing journey that you took quite a few years ago now. It's 1991. Yeah. And this trip has almost become a Connecticut legend among those people who know it. And I thought we could sit down and relive Steve Grant's source-to-sea journey on the Connecticut River. So here we are. It's 1991. You are already a well-established political editor with the Hartford Current, seasoned, award-winning, veteran political reporter, and you decide you're going to put that job aside so that you can canoe the Connecticut River source to sea and write about that instead of what you'd built your reputation on, right? Yep. So let me start with a question that you asked in one of the first articles you wrote about that trip. You wrote, why? Why spend a month pushing a canoe down a river, dragging it around 17 dams, living out of whatever will fit in a 16-foot canoe? Good question. Steve, what's the answer? Well, I had, over the years, uh, canoed uh, perhaps half of the Connecticut River in little pieces. A Saturday here, 10 miles, uh, a Sunday there, 10 miles. Uh, really all along the river, different parts. But I'd never done the whole thing, and the river is 410 miles. So I had done a little less than half of it, I'd guess. 
I really was hoping to get a feel for the whole river and the, and the experience of the whole river. And I thought it would show me the history of the river in ways, and it would show me the uh, ecology of the river in ways that I had heretofore not fully understood. And so it was a great learning possibility for me. And I knew that while I suspected it would be exhausting and, and difficult at times, but I also thought it would be hugely rewarding and a, a wonderful learning experience. And as a journalist, you love to learn. Was it a hard sell to your editor? It wasn't. Uh, I had done some stories previously on the Connecticut River, but one night in the, in the newsroom at the Hartford Current, my immediate editor, Claude Albert, and uh, the executive uh, editor, Mike Waller, we kind of just kind of bumped into each other. It was late. We're all heading home. It's like 7 o'clock at night. So Mike Waller says to me, and he loved to kid me, you know, and he knew that I was interested in all this outdoorsy stuff, you know, as he called it. And, uh, and he says to me, Grant, what are you up to? Well, what, what's your latest story idea? Claude interjects and says, oh, don't get him started. He'll bring up his idea of canoeing the whole Connecticut River. Mike Waller looks at me and he says, could you really do that? Could you, could you canoe the whole river? How, how big is it? I said, it's 410 miles. And I said, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd need to plan and prepare, but I, I think I could. And he said, what would you do? And I told him some of the reasons why I wanted to do it. Just a couple of story ideas that might pop out of it. And he said to me, you know, I like this idea. He said, would you tomorrow morning give me a memo on this, on, on what we might do, how long it would take, and what you would do? I said, sure. Wow. <laughs> so... I went home, and I, and I started on it right then. I came in early the next morning. I got him. By lunchtime, he said, do it. Take as long as it, as it, as it takes to do it, but do it right and be safe. Uh, so uh, I took about a month to prepare for it. And uh, during that time, I was interviewing uh, all kinds of people who had some connection to the river. And that included uh, geologists who had studied the river from, you know, the headwaters uh, in New Hampshire uh, all the way to the sea uh, in, the diff in the four states uh, through which it flows. Uh, and uh, I talked to, oh, the, the top fisheries uh, officials in the state. I talked to water quality engineers in all the different states. I talked to agriculture people, all these different fields and disciplines that, that uh, involved the river, botanists, biologists. And so I had a massive amount of background material in my laptop computer. A primitive laptop, I must say, at the time. Because you were going to report to the current as you made this trip down, so you're going to do yeah. it in kind of real time, yeah. you also took the latest technology. Now, let me refresh your memory with the description that you put in that same first article. You said, I have along a laptop computer that will work on batteries or electricity <laughs> to file stories. I couple my computer to a telephone 
maybe a pay telephone one day, a farmhouse telephone on the others, and I press a key. The story should appear seconds later on the current computer. You sound a little in awe of this, you know, that kind of what hath God wrought. And I think a lot of us who live through that era can hear the <laughs> dong, dong. <laughs> but the, the technology really was, you know, in a very early stage, wasn't it? Yes, uh, how, for sure. How heavy were these things? Oh, you know, and meanwhile, weight is very important when you're in a canoe and you've got a lot of gear. And, you know, the less you have, the better off when it comes time to portage around dams. But so this was just another thing. The, the couplers are big, bulky things that came in their own little cloth bag. And, you know, you, you just kind of put them over the... the the telephone and the, the handset those were the yeah. old big yeah. round handsets right yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. old-fashioned phones you know uh and uh they didn't work very well all the time uh I, there were times when it would take me multiple attempts to send a story uh using these um uh, there were multiple times it took me two hours to actually just send a complete story completed story to the current something routinely done today in a matter of a few seconds uh, did they have web browsers then was the internet a thing or uh, yeah uh, th but it was so primitive even then there was really not much on there this is my yeah. favorite technology part of your story you you continued on after this wonderful description of the uh, the phone modem you say for part of my trip I will have a battery-powered cellular phone, which actually would allow me to make calls and send stories from the canoe. And you added, I think the business office was aghast at the cost. Yes. How yes. big was that cell phone? I remember those early phones. Oh, oh yeah, it was, it was huge. Uh, it was this big, heavy thing, you know, with a big battery. The battery weighed more than way more than the phone. It was in a canvas yeah. bag, yeah, right? Yeah, and you yeah. put it over your shoulder. Yeah, you, yeah. It was more like a World War II picture where the radio man is coming with his thing. Yeah. So and it was, and uh, again, uh, even though I had this phone and it was expensive to rent, uh, you know, it it rarely worked because there was no cell service in northern New England to speak of back then. In fact, it wasn't until somewhere around. Northampton, that I started to sort of regularly get a signal, uh, and I was able to use it. But you know, I don't, I don't know that I sent more than maybe one story uh, using that uh, new technology. Did Did you use it to call people? I will. You yeah, know. yeah, I, I did. But I, you know, a lot of times it just it, it, the signal wasn't strong enough when I was up north. And uh, but once I got down. Uh, into Connecticut, the the signal was a little more reliable. Oh, I'm but telling not you, even perfect I would here. have been the guy out in the middle of the river with my paddle, you know, flat on the side of the canoe, calling everybody I knew. Hi, I'm calling you from the middle of the Connecticut yeah, River. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I did. You know, I mean, you know, I called home and uh, I called a couple of friends, and but uh, you know, I was actually kind of busy uh, in this, you know, wonderful kind of way. Uh, well. It strikes me that, looking back, this was really a different world. This was the world before constant contact, 
right? It's yeah. right on, you're right shimmering on this transition. Yep. Where, and, and I wondered, did, do you think that made the trip different than it would be today? Did you feel a sense of maybe isolation or aloneness on this trip? Yeah. Uh, it was uh, definitely different than uh, what it would be today. Uh, and there's even an, uh, an analogy with the uh, Appalachian Trail because people who hike the whole Appalachian Trail now, it's the same thing. It's a different experience, and it's, uh, it's just like me coming down the, down, down the river. So I had, it was, it was not all that easy most of the way for me to be in easy contact with the outside world. There were lots of days when I was alone and I would paddle all day long. I'd stop, I'd make my lunch, I'd check out this, I'd, I'd do a little bird watching maybe, uh, whatever. Uh, and uh, I was out there alone. It was very solitary, very beautiful. Um, I'll, I'll digress for just a moment. I think of the afternoon I am in uh, central Massachusetts. It's a, it's a glorious day like today. Uh, this was in June, and uh, it was a day, 75, blue sky, no wind, low humidity. And I am just paddling slowly. There's nobody around. It's a weekday. And I see a kingbird up overhead. Now, this is an insect-eating species. And they, they love to be along rivers. They almost invariably nest next to water. And so this kingbird, I see it shoot out over the river in front of me, all right? And there's a big insect flying around up there. I then proceeded to watch for about a minute this aerial uh, display of the kingbird after the insect. And both of them are incredibly acrobatic. And it takes, it takes the kingbird like a full minute to finally catch this insect. But I was thinking, I thought at the time, even then, this is so cool that I can be out here on this river all by myself. And I just watched this little uh, drama in, in nature. It and, reminds me of yeah. Thoreau's description of the ant, right? The yeah. Battle of the Ants. Yeah, is sure. It, yeah. 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 And all, he, had, he had so many of those experiences, of course. Uh, but yes, uh, same, same idea. It was a, a little... A little moment, uh, but I've never forgotten it. It is, it is clear from just the way you wrote your stories that you already were a naturalist and a nature writer. Had your professional life started to go in this direction already, or were you... Yeah. While I was you know, a political writer for a long time and a political editor at The Current for a couple of years, I had always, uh, well, first of all, you know, I come out of the University of Connecticut, you know, in 1970. You know, I'm there for the first Earth Day. And uh, so, you know, uh, in 1970, I just, I want to be a journalist. I, I want to write about this stuff. And so I start writing politics. I get my first job at a small newspaper. And um, uh, I'm, I basically steer myself as much as I can. You know, I'm beginning my career, but I'm, I'm steering myself toward writing about the environment and politics, my two, my two loves. Uh, and uh, I'm a creature out of the late 60s. Well, you know, and, and, and that you know. was a good time, actually, yeah. to pursue 
the policy decisions made around the environment because there were a lot of them being made. Oh, huge. It was all kinds of stuff was happening in both worlds. Uh, So I did that, uh, you know, all along, even though primarily I was doing politics, I was doing a lot of environmental writing. And at the same time, on my own time, uh, I, you know, I was out in nature as as much as I I could be, uh, often with my kids and, and my wife. I had already written many environmental stories by the time I did the the Connecticut River series. Yeah, your background clearly shows in the writing this is not a first-time experience for a lot of this for you. Before we move on and do the trip itself, I got one more question. Friends gave you a mixtape before you went on the trip, and I assume it was a cassette, right? Uh-huh. And they titled it, Music for a solo canoeist. Do you remember that tape? Uh, I do. You remember any of the stuff on it? Do you? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of classical on there. There was uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Spring, the strings, and yep. uh, and stuff like that. There was uh, some Brandenburg concertos. So would you listen to them at night, or would you be yeah. paddling down the river? With, I, I you... didn't play it during the day, yeah. but, uh, but uh, if I wasn't too exhausted at the end of the day... I, I'm pretty sure what I had at the time was a Sony Walkman. <laughs> didn't we all? <laughs> yeah, didn't we all? And uh, so I had, I, I'm pretty sure it was a Walkman that I had with me. And, uh, and probably shouldn't have because there was another little, you know, pound uh, of weight that I, you know, probably could have gotten by without. But, yeah, so I would play it uh, now and then. I had a few cassettes along, including that one, which was really uh, a great uh, cassette. You know, I've, I've really dwelled on this technology just because it seems so fascinating and kind of yeah. antique in a way. Yeah. But what about the rest of the provisions? How did you decide what to take? And, you know, because you are balancing this question of weight and what you can carry. And as we'll see, weight and and just volume of equipment's a big factor in this trip. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, you, you know, just uh, same with backpacking. You know, you want to keep things as light as possible, trim as possible. Uh, we all take too much with us, wherever, whatever we do. Uh, and I took too much with me on this trip. You know, I decided uh, that in, you know, in terms of food, I was only going to keep two to three days at the most because I knew that even though the upper river is far more remote uh, than the river is here, uh, that I still would come into a little village almost every day, if not every day. So I had along, you know, a couple of cans of tuna. I had some pasta. I think I had made my own marinara sauce, and I think I had dehydrated some. And uh, I, so I had a little stash of dehydrated uh, marinara. And, uh, you know, I had garlic and I had olive oil. So effortlessly I could whip up a little pasta dinner. Well, we'll, we'll talk about some of yeah. the things you whipped up, too, because <laughs> they, they still amaze me. Now, this source-to-sea trip, actually began not with a paddle but with a hike right yeah where'd Uh you go yeah so the connecticut river begins uh, truly on the canadian border you hike in uh if if you want to get to the source of the connecticut river the ultimate source you go to the u.s customs station on the canadian border on route three in pittsburgh new hampshire and this is as far north as you can go and you know you go another hundred feet and you're in canada but right there, there's a custom station, 
And if you go in and you and you, and you talk to them, uh, they I don't don't know if they still do, but they did then. They had a little little hand drawn map, and you would walk uh, right out behind the custom station, and you would follow the international boundary for something like three quarters of a mile. Uh, and you got woods on both side, sides of you. And this is a spruce and balsam fir forest. It's beautiful. Uh, you walk along and, you know, every, I don't know, you know, 300 feet or so, there's an international boundary marker uh, and it's set into the ledge stone. And then you'll come to this little, little, tiny little wooden sign with an arrow. And it says, Fourth Connecticut Lake. You walk down this hillside, and you come to Fourth Connecticut Lake, grandly called when this thing is not even as big as a football field, and it's a it's a very uh, marshy uh, pond uh, filled with vegetation in in the summertime. Where does the water come from? Comes in off the hillside on the on the New Hampshire border. So I actually poked around on the north side of Fourth Connecticut Lake and, you know, found a couple little rivulets coming down. I mean, these are just tiny. You couldn't call them brook. I mean, these are just little seepages off, yeah. the, off the hillside. Into this pond. Into this pond. And I'm saying, ha-ha, I have been to the ultimate source of the Connecticut River. But then what's the outlet like? When it comes out, it's a little brook. It's a brook so small uh, you easily can jump across it, so naturally I did. Uh, and you jump across the brook. It's it's a matter of three feet wide. So it's, you couldn't have canoed it if you yeah, wanted no, to. No, no. Uh, and then it comes down to Third Connecticut Lake. Now, here's a lake you could actually call a lake. You know, it's actually, it might be a couple of miles long. It's very deep. It's a great fishing lake. There's lake trout in it. There's brook trout in it. Uh, and there's nothing on it but a boat launch. When it leaves, when the river leaves Third Lake on its way to Second Lake, again, it's there are little patches of it that are canoeable, but mostly they're not. Did it's, you did you canoe any of that? I, I did didn't. I until the almost uh, right before Second Lake, uh, I did. But um, much of it is just a. a Anything from a brook to a very small trout stream. So you walked to Fourth Lake, and then you paddled across yep. Third Lake. Yep. Then you kind of walked to the, just before you get to Second Lake. Yep. And tell us about Second Lake. Yeah. Second Lake uh, is, a, again, a beautiful lake, bigger than Third Lake. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, well, it's probably four miles long. Uh, there is... Almost nothing on on Second Connecticut Lake. Uh, it's just forest and the lake and you. Uh, it's 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 a great spot. And from there, there's a white difficult, very difficult whitewater section between Second Lake and and First Lake. Uh, in fact, there's a place called Falls in the River, which is beautiful. Uh, I've taken photographs of it. Uh, I've walked that whole stretch uh, in between. And then First Lake... But, it, but you didn't paddle that. I didn't, it sounds like I it's pretty dangerous. I, I came in you know, to Second Lake, and, and then uh, I did not do that section between Second Lake and First Lake. So with, with provisions, 
bag cell phone, you. How much does your canoe weigh? Oh, the canoe itself, yeah. without anything in it, was 60 pounds. It was an old town camper, 16-footer, very fine uh, canoe. I've actually had two of them. And then my gear, I'm guessing, it was probably 100 pounds easy. So, uh, so you're... You're pushing 150, 60 plus yourself right. pounds yeah. down the river. That's, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah. So this land of lakes and woods, it's very different than the Connecticut River we see down here. How would you describe the differences between that territory up at the Canadian border and what people in Connecticut see when they see yeah. the Connecticut yeah. River? It is just uh, so different. In fact, it is, it's so cool about the Connecticut River because the Connecticut River uh, essentially encompasses everything you can experience in New England in one river basin. You've got the northern boreal forest to begin, a forest that is largely spruce trees, and balsam fir, you know, the Christmas tree, and uh, northern hardwoods. It's just m mile after mile of deep forest. Logging is still an industry up there, but even though it's a big industry, when you look around, you are looking at forest and water. And the water is pristine. The river is much smaller up there. And as you come down, you come down through different eco-zones, uh, in, in effect. You get down around Hanover, New Hampshire, and we've got more of a hardwood forest. Now, now all those uh, softwoods and the, the spruces and firs, they're disappearing. And then you come all the way down here, and you come down to Old Lyme and Saybrook, and you've got coastal, uh, coastal New England. You you basically you basically get a sense of everything you can see in the New entire England. range of possibilities yeah. of New England of New topography England yeah. happens right here so, on the Connecticut. So everybody should get a canoe and do what you did. They should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they they should listen to the rest of this first before <laughs> they sign up because it's quite a quite a challenge. Now, I understand that the Connecticut River at 4th Connecticut Lake, where it starts, is actually a half a mile higher above sea level than it is when it gets down to the Long Island Sound. So the elevation drop is a half a mile, which is pretty substantial even for this long run. But a whole bunch of that, about a thousand feet of it, happens in that very first early section, doesn't it? Yeah. So drop. What's that mean mm. for the intrepid canoeist? Yeah. Well, it makes it. You know, there are parts of it that you can do. Uh, and uh, at times, I had uh, a Hartford Current photographer, Michael McAndrews, with me, uh, and so the two of us would be uh, uh, paddling. Uh, I can remember one day where uh, we were. Uh, in, in northern New Hampshire, below the lakes region. Uh, but we ran into quite a bit of white water uh, in that stretch of river. And it was tricky in places. Uh, there was a long half-mile stretch of Class II white water where you've got, you know, broken, riffled water, little white-cappy waves. Not terribly difficult, terribly dangerous. But you still got to watch what you're doing. And we took in some water, you know, 
uh, in places. So uh, it's a, it is more like a small stream canoeing experience way up north there. Um, uh, very much unlike uh, what you see here in Connecticut. The first town you talk about, which is right near the lakes up at the, the source of the river, is a little town called Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, right? Yeah. And very small population, great big county. And you say it's not the kind of place you would expect to find a traffic jam. But you write about the fact that in this little town of Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, there is a traffic jam every evening just about sunset, right? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Well, uh, Route 3 goes north-south uh, through Pittsburgh, and P Pittsburgh is uh, 360 square miles. This is a big town with hardly any people. It has pretty much, I think everybody would agree, it has more moose than permanent people uh, live, living there permanently. There are moose everywhere. And so uh, people will get in their cars uh, at dusk and drive along Route 3 slowly. And if you do this and you look over to the side of the road, you'll see these little wet, marshy little areas here and there. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're almost guaranteed to see two or three moose. Because moose wanna, are vegetarian, right? They yeah, eat yeah, the, yeah, yeah. They're, they're munching away. They eat leaves and you know, aquatic vegetation, uh, but uh, they'll eat tree leaves, uh, and you'll see, you'll see them eat a birch leaf. Uh, and but again, you, you know, there's a very good chance, uh, almost certain, that you're going to see a couple of moose. And if, the traffic jam is from what tourists uh, yeah, and yeah, leaf peepers, yeah, and yeah, yeah, because yeah, 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 the locals, I assume, have seen they, enough they've, moose. They've seen enough moose. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you've you got to be careful driving on Route Three. You don't want to be ripping along at 50 miles an hour at dusk. Absolutely. Well, the, the thing about moose is that if you hit a moose with a car, they are just tall enough that they're going to come through your windshield. Through and windshield. that's very dangerous, yep. right? So yeah. it's not like a deer. It's a, yeah. it's a very serious problem. Yeah. Let's move down the river a little bit. You are on your way now. You, you know, you've done the lake thing. You're moving. It's day six, and you're near Colebrook, New Hampshire. And, and I like your story of this day because you describe two very contrasting experiences. You first canoed through the whitewater rapids of Beecher Falls. You were talking about that a little bit earlier. Then you came to a hydroelectric dam and you had to portage. That means carry all that stuff, the cell phone, the equipment, the canoe. And, and I'm assuming that took multiple trips. Yeah, yeah. So, so... How would you contrast those two experiences? You did them both in the same day, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you expecting this? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, preparing for the trip. So uh, a group uh, then called the Connecticut River Watershed Council. Now it's called the Connecticut River Conservancy. Uh, uh, for many years has been publishing a little guidebook to the river. And it's excellent. Uh, you can buy it today. Uh, and so they basically uh, outline uh, the, all the access points to the river and uh, section by section what you can expect uh, uh, as, you, as you come down the river. So that's a very helpful thing to just start, start with. That, coupled with all the additional research that I had done in much more detail, 
I had topo maps, topographic maps uh, put out by the government for the entire river. Uh, and uh, so I knew in great detail what, what I was expecting on any given day. So I was, I was prepared for that. So I, I knew that we were going to go into rapids on, on that day, and I knew I was going to have to deal with a dam. So tell us about day. that portaging around the dam. How, how, how tedious or how hard is that? Yeah, to... tedious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there were, you know, um, there's a couple of dams on the river now that are basically falling apart, and you can, you can shoot them in a, in a canoe. You can go right through them. But uh, there's the other 15. Uh, so and, there are yeah. 17 main stem dams on yeah. the Connecticut. Two of them are yeah. kind of out of yeah. commission, but yeah. 17 of them, yeah. they are real, real dams, yeah. hydroelectric, yeah. or are they all hydroelectric or is some uh, flood control? Uh, yeah, I think they are. I think they are all hydro. There's one I don't think is producing hydro anymore yeah uh they um uh some of them are are quite big uh and in new hampshire and and of course holyoke dam in massachusetts is is big and so getting around these dams is uh, is a big deal and it, it can take hours uh especially if you have like i said too much gear along so uh i would come in and again, the guidebook is helpful. It'll tell you you really want to you really want to stay on the, you know, the east side or the west side of the river when, if you're going to portage this dam. You know, the portage route is on, let's say, the uh, west side. So you don't yeah. want to park on the wrong side yeah. of the dam and have right. to carry everything. Right. Yeah. The length of the dam as well. Right. Yeah. 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 So. You know, you you find the easiest route, and and you should that, that shouldn't be terribly difficult. Uh, but then, you know, you you pull your canoe to shore, drag it up, you know, get your gear out, and typically, what would happen with me is I'd have to make three trips. Uh, and again, really knowing outdoors, people will say, "Well, eh, see, he had way too much stuff along. He should have been able to do that in one trip or two. Well, it was three. And uh, so I would, one trip, I would just take the canoe over my head. And, you know, it was a 60-pound canoe. But there are a couple of the um, uh, portage routes that are, I would say, a good half mile. So it's not as if you just you know, you scamper around you know, a, a dam. They, it, it can be a, a walk. So you would do that then. I would walk back. And I would get a whole bunch of gear. Part of it I had uh, in a in a big plastic backpack. I could get a lot of stuff in there, and then I would I would grab other things in my arms, and I would make a trip. And then I usually would have still have some stuff. You uh, must have been really fit to do this. I mean, that well, sounds like you're carrying. Uh, let's just say I was fit by the end of the trip. <laughs> uh, I, bet I that's was for sure. I went into it in reasonably good shape. I had done a lot of walking. I had done a fair amount of paddling. Not enough, because I'll be quite honest. The first uh, four or five days, I was exhausted at the end of the day. I I can imagine. I was doing, you know, maybe uh, I was trying to average 14 miles a day. And and that's, in fact, about what I averaged over the course of the trip. But early on at night, I was just, I was sore. I was really really tired and uh, 
I'd get up in the morning and it's like, oh my, here we go again. Uh, so where would you stop? Where would you sleep? Did you go to hotels? Did you? Yeah, yeah. a little bit of everything, but almost no motels. Uh, once a week, I tried to do that. Um, and, and that was always a, a special day, nice shower, and easy to write the story. I can sit down at a table somewhere. Uh, but um, I camped most nights, and I camped alone most nights. Uh, there were a few nights Michael was with me. We each had a tent. Uh, we had, you know, we each had our own gear and stuff. But um, uh, so... Was this fun. in campgrounds, or did you uh, camp on the river, or...? Uh, both. So where I could, and this is interesting because the river, it's, it's, the situation has changed now. But when I came down the river, uh, there weren't a lot of campsites. So I was bushwhacking campsites in a lot of places. I would just find a place to pull over. I can remember one night I just I tucked myself into the edge of a cornfield. In fact, twice I did that. Uh, you know, a, a, a farm next to the river, flat land. I pulled the canoe in and boom, I camped. Um, I camped uh, unauthorized at a couple of boat launches. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. Almost every one of them has a sign, don't camp. Uh, I did. Uh, and um, But then there were a few campsites. There's one uh, that is so convenient and nice and comfortable uh, in New Hampshire. Um, it, uh, it, is, um, it is north of uh, Hanover, um, and uh, uh, I pulled in there, and I made myself a nice dinner, nice breakfast, and, uh, and, and on I went. Uh, in fact, that, that place had a shower. <laughs> it actually had a Wonderful shower. Wonderful thing, yeah. A campground with a shower. Uh, so I, I took advantage of a campground if I, if I could find one. Otherwise, I just trailblazed. And then uh, one, at least once a week, I got a motel room uh, as close to the river as I could. Were you ever concerned for your safety in any of the places where you camped? Was that an issue? Or you? Uh, it was, it, you know, it did not prove to be an issue. Uh, I tried to be careful. Uh, I mean, I really did watch where I was camping. And like boat launches are not a good idea. People are always pulling into them late at night. And, you know, so even the nights that I camped uh, unauthorized, as I say, uh, at, a, at a boat launch, I would really tuck myself away so that I wouldn't be easily seen. And then if I was coming into a city, like in Springfield, I really, it's very hard to find a place to camp in, in Springfield. And I, I, I really lucked out. Yeah, yeah, you got a steak dinner out of yeah, it, too, I got, as I, I recall. A, yes. Yeah. Or yeah. at least a steak dinner invitation. I don't know whether you no, took them I up got on the, it or not. No, I did. Uh, oh, no. That was, uh, I, could, I could tell that story briefly. I'm coming down the river, and I'm not finding a place to camp in Springfield. I pulled over in one spot thinking, let me check this out. And, and, you know, there was debris all over the river's edge. And I climb up a bank and I go up and it's rush hour. And 
traffic is going crazy. There's a traffic circle up there, and the cars are beeping their horns at each other, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. You know, you referenced that moment twice in the, in the articles that you wrote. Once at the very end, when you're talking about what that trip meant to you, and this, this moment of coming up on this riverbank and being confronted with civilization at a real rough hour really it, it hit you forcibly didn't it yes yes it did and and you know again uh we were talking about that peaceful afternoon that i had in the northampton area you know with the kingbird up uh, uh, overhead uh so that was uh it was like the next day that i'm coming into spring in springfield I had just had this, you know, idyllic, beautiful, calming experience, uh, this yoga-like experience on the river, and um, uh, and I and then I walked up and I'm in this intersection and it's just, it's like everything you don't, everything you hate about rush hour, is right there in front of me, and I said, there's no way I can camp anywhere near here. I go back down to my boat. I paddle on. I don't. I don't know where I'm going to stay now. I'm thinking I may end up having to go to Enfield, and even there, I don't know what I'm going to find. When along comes a, a big powerboat, one of those pontoon boats, and there's two couples on board, and they see me, and I'm I'm an oddity on the river because I'm in a canoe by myself, in a canoe loaded with gear. I'm clearly not out there for an afternoon. And so these people come up next to me and they say, ha, huh, are, you, are you on a big trip, you know? And, and I said, yeah, and I tell them what I'm doing and they're, they're like, wow, holy cow, how cool, you know? Well, and I, and I do want to talk yeah. about this. As you go down the river, you became a celebrity. I mean, it, it, you know, there's, a, there's a kind of Forrest Gump running across yeah. the country aspect uh, of this trip, right? Yeah, yes, yes, and it, it did end up that way. Yeah. yeah. And so these people say, well, listen, uh, where are you camping tonight? And I said, I don't know. I said, I can't find a place to camp. And they said, stay with us. You can camp right on our lawn. We live on the river. So I said, oh, that's fabulous. And they said, not only that, we own restaurants and it's our day off. We're having a steak cookout on our backyard overlooking the river tonight. With all the trimmings, and, and, and you're invited. Score. So I pull in behind them, drag my canoe up, set up my tent on a beautifully mowed lawn overlooking the river, and they proceed to make dinner, uh, steaks, and all kinds of side now, dishes. Now, is this one of those days when you've been five or six days without a shower and, yeah. you know, tromping through yeah. the mud? And, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really, I don't think I had had a shower in quite a while uh, when that that night came upon. So this was this wonderful, magical uh, experience. I mean, in the in the stories you tell, there's a. I don't know if they're they're, you know, you weren't you didn't have the urgency of that. I got to find a place to camp. It's getting dark, but it does seem there are several times along this trip when you run into the right people at the right time. That yeah. it just yeah. Either by fate or by accident or something, 
when when you need something or you're looking for something, there's somebody there who's who's yes. got a good story for the reporter, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Way up, way way up north. I'm I'm trying to remember. There was some reason I needed. I I really wanted to be ten miles away, and this woman uh, finds out that I'm. I'm, I'm camped somewhere and says, you know, I'm going to, I'll get you up there. And I said, oh, no, no, you don't have to do that. And she said, no, no big deal. It's, it's not, 10 miles up, 10 miles back, nothing. I said, okay. I hopped in and we went. I think I, think I, needed, I, think I needed groceries. And, uh, and really where I was, there was nothing. So, yeah, things like that happened. So let's, let's go back up to the north a little bit. The, the, because there's a question I have about these forest areas. The, the first 10 days of the trip, you're in this arboreal or arboreal and deciduous forest area. And at the time, there was a lot of concern about the future of this area because these forest lots were owned by large paper companies. They had big blocks of land. And people were telling you that these blocks of land are up for sale and that they fully expected Wall Street investors to come in, buy these blocks of land, strip off the trees, and then turn them over to developers or something for suburban development. Now, that was really a big concern then, right? Mm -hmm. Did it happen? Yes. I don't know that it's happened uh, to the degree that uh, conservation-minded uh, people feared at the time but it has happened uh, it, is, it has happened throughout that whole uh, northern forest um, uh, because and a lot has to do with you know Wall Street uh, economics 